Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. Presented by SeatGeek, the best place to buy Chicago White Sox tickets, download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 4th, 2018. Today is a big day for the Chicago White Sox, as it's the Major League Baseball Draft, as it'll cover the next three days. We'll be covering the draft in depth as the picks are made on SoxMachine.com, but as we lead up to who the White Sox will pick 4th and 46th overall on the first day, it'll be useful to take another look at the upcoming prospects. Joining us from 2080 Baseball is Burt Granger. He'll share his thoughts about what the White Sox could do fourth overall and who he would take between Nick Madrigal and Brady Sinner. We'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox and have your minor league report. But first, the Chicago White Sox won a series against the best team in the National League. What a way to start the month of June. And joining me as the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What a way to start the month of June. You're getting your wish. Maybe the 500 month. That's all I'm asking, man. That's all I'm asking. It was funny because on SoxMachine.com, we had just recently the Good and Bad Awards. And... uh you know, highlighting the fact that the White Sox in April were eight and eighteen, and then in May they were eight and nineteen, did not make me feel better <laughs> as far as like how this season started. Uh, but now starting June two and one, and of course, you know, thanks to Greg Nix for pointing that out. 
uh, as far as those monthly records. Uh, yeah, hopefully this is the launch pad because I feel like there could be a lot of positive excitement that can quickly make us forget what transpired in April and May. It'd be kind of like the reverse of last year in that they got off to a good start. They got off to a, or they, they ended the year on a strong note and the middle was a mess. This year, you know, maybe they front mm-hmm. load that mess <laughs> and, you know, like the last, uh, or at least the large part of the last four months are watchable slash encouraging. Um, yeah, I wouldn't expect them to have a 500 record over the bulk of the remainder of the season, but at least, you know, stretches and at least to the point where you can identify the linchpins of the rebuild and the losses are maybe the more negligible parts like, you know, overexposed starters. You have situations like where you have Jose Rondon batting cleanup or, um, you know, starts by spot starters or bullpen days or whatever, you know, where they just have to kind of eat a loss here and there. That's why I'd like to see is just more encouraging performances from the guys who are important. And I totally agree with you, even though that there are some guys that are going to make things Fun along the way to watch, and one of those guys is Daniel Polka. He had a big pinch hit home run for the White Sox that gave him the lead that they would not relinquish on Sunday. And of course, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, back-to-back shots from Daniel Polka and Adam Engel uh, on Sunday. <laughs> and uh, the White Sox bullpen, we, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, hinting at that the bullpen is starting to get stable and they have been a lot more consistent as of late and they came up big Friday and Sunday and uh, in large thanks to the White Sox offense taking advantage of facing ex-White Sox bullpen arms in Matt Albers, Boone Logan, and Dan Jennings. The White Sox are still 20 games below 500. they They're 18-38. and 38. From our friend of the podcast, our best friend of the podcast, ESPN's Dan Zaborski, Zips is still projecting the White Sox to have the best odds of having the number one pick in the 2019 draft, which of course means the White Sox would have the worst record in all of Major League Baseball. They got a 36% chance right now of having that number one pick. But one of the guys that is starting to stir up more conversation, and rightfully so, because as soon as Dylan Covey was called up from Charlotte Jim, he just looks completely different from last year. On Sunday, he pitched well enough to put the White Sox in a position, again, against the best team in the National League right now, the Milwaukee Brewers, to win or at least be competitive. Pitched five innings, four hits, one run allowed, which was unearned, three walks, and seven strikeouts. In four starts, Dylan Covey has pitched 22 and a third innings, allowing 22 hits, seven earned runs, 21 strikeouts to 10 walks, and he hasn't allowed a home run. Totally different guy from last year, Jim. And James Fegan of The Athletic, he just wrote later on Sunday on why Covey should stay in the rotation when Carlos Rodon comes back. It is going to be a big decision for Rick Hahn this upcoming week. He's got a lot of big decisions to make this week. I agree with James, Jim, that Covey deserves more starts in the rotation. What are your thoughts about Covey staying in the rotation? And how do you think this rotation will shake out when Carlos Rodon returns? I'm, I guess I'm split on Kofi. Like I, I, I agree he's made progress and it's a little bit tough to judge him now just because he's faced good lineups. So he's only gone, uh, he didn't make it out of the fifth against Cleveland. That was because of the defense and he finished five. He had to labor a bit to get through five against Milwaukee, but both of those teams have really good lineups. And the fact that he, um, you know, that defense was the only reason they scored runs on him, at least the uh, reason he fell behind, you know, that's, um, you know, it's pretty good. 
His fastball has more life, and it seems like he's using a pretty simple approach. Right now, like when I watch him, um, I kind of get the feeling I got watching Dylan Axelrod, even though it, like it, Kobe throws like a, um, you know, four miles per hour harder. But just like kind of the same thing where he's got a good sinker, you know, this, the breaking ball is okay, the changeup's there. But it's really just kind of a fastball command type thing, and, and by the third time through, you're thinking he's kind of run out of tricks because he can't really exploit the top half of the zone. I like seeing him go inside against lefties, so he's got that going for him. Uh, the sinker has a lot of life. He's throwing with confidence, so I mean, like, that's all good. It just, um, yeah, he can't really unlock the top half of the zone with anything, so I think once uh, hitters see him a couple times, they can start to lock in. So that's why I'm skeptical, but... You know, based on the way he's throwing now and, you know, how he gets through innings and how he, uh, you know, doesn't uh, cause um, anybody to tear their hair out, <laughs> I think, you know, as opposed to somebody like Lucas Giolito is just kind of still uh, not generating a whole lot of confidence from anybody. Um, and, and Hector Santiago, I think, is the most disposable member of the rotation. Um, for the time being, I think I like him getting starts more than either of those two. All right. Because the White Sox are going to have that decision to make. So, the White Sox are off today on Monday. They play a doubleheader against the Twins to try to start making up those three games that they missed in April when they were snowed out in Minneapolis and they were dealing with that blizzard. Ronaldo Lopez is going to make the start for game one of that doubleheader on Tuesday. That's a 3.10 p.m. Central Time start. So we're kind of blending in the preview of the Twin Series into this conversation. The Twins are 25-30 and 30, thanks to Eddie Rosario hitting three home runs, including a walk-off shot, to beat the Cleveland Indians. But again, we're into June, 55 games into the season, and the Twins are still five games below 500. The Twins haven't announced who they're going to be throwing in this series. Uh, but Lucas Giolito is scheduled to start the second game of the doubleheader. I thought this would be a spot where Carlos Rodan or Michael Kopech would be making their start because they could expand the roster to 26 guys. Uh, the White Sox may have a different idea on how they want to expand that 26 man as far as uh, that day. But how important is this start, Jim, for Lucas Giolito? Could he be the 26th guy? And if he doesn't pitch well on Tuesday, then the White Sox decide, okay, it's time to option you to Charlotte. Seems like it. I mean, the White Sox haven't telegraphed at all, and they typically don't when it comes to these delicate conditions, whether it's you know, a guy maybe hiding or trying to battle through an injury or somebody like uh, Giolito who's underperforming right now and not meeting expectations like the way Fulmer wasn't. Um, you know, they really don't say, you know, we're looking at making a change soon. Um, it's now or never, that kind of thing. They just try to maintain the status quo until the last possible moment. So I think... Uh, you know, if Giolito goes down, we're not going to get hints beforehand. And uh, the White Sox are playing it pretty straight and, and, and are reaffirming their belief in him. But when you watch him pitch and just, uh, uh, you know, there isn't a whole lot of conviction with this stuff. There's, you know, the, the fastball did rebound a little bit. He was able to get 94, 95, um, really not hanging there, but at least he's getting it there. But yeah, the breaking ball is not really a consistent weapon, and he's not looking, still not looking anywhere near the guy who we saw in spring training, just blowing away the Cubs. So, um, and that seems to be mechanical in nature. You know, it's not necessarily health thing. It just seems like, uh, you know, I think it was Keith Law who said it, and and uh, I'm trying to think who else uh, with that kind of background was saying that it just doesn't look right. Um, you know, they they just kind of out of sync. I think that kind of thing 
rather than not getting guys out, if it's the thing where it's mechanical and it's more about the life on his stuff and the jump on his fastball, I think that can be worked out in Charlotte versus just, you know, major league hitters giving a hard time. So I think that's where the decision would be made. And so I think it's important for Giolito to show more on his stuff against the Twins uh, because, yeah, if he has another outing where he walks five, six, seven batters and especially in a doubleheader, you know, does not get through, you know, three innings or, um, you know, puts the bullpen in a bad spot for a pretty long stretch run, then I can see Giolito being maybe optioned down to make room for an extra arm in the bullpen. And then after that, you know, maybe bringing up uh, Rodon and having Giolito stay there for a while. Yes, because on Wednesday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time will be Hector Santiago. The Twins have announced their Wednesday and Thursday starters. Jake Odorizzi will be starting for the Twins on Wednesday night and Thursday afternoon at 12.10 p.m. Central Time as it's getaway day as the White Sox will be heading to Boston for the weekend. It will be James Shields on the mound for the White Sox against Jose Barrios for the Minnesota Twins, in which Barrios has done very well against the White Sox. So we'll see who the Twins have as far as in the doubleheader. But it, it is it does make this whole thing quite interesting as far as the starting rotation because I thought that Michael Kopak this would be the end of the window that we could see Kopak being called up. Our colleague Patrick Nolan has tweeted that if the White Sox were concerned about Super 2 status, they have no reason to be concerned anymore because we're this late into the calendar and Super 2 has never been given to players that are called up at this late into a season in a couple years down the road. However, Michael Kopech had a bad start in Buffalo, Jim. Is that a good enough reason to keep him in Charlotte longer? Well, I can see the White Sox just waiting for him to have a good start before calling him up. I don't think they're, it, you know, it's necessarily like they're, they got a bad start in Buffalo and pumping their fists like, yeah, I can keep him down longer. But I think, uh, you know, given... Yeah, but it's like, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's like, I think they're ready to call him up more or less. And I think if he had a good start in Buffalo, he might be in the conversation. I don't think it would have made a difference just because I think you have Rodon coming up and he's gets the priority because, uh, you know, he's been there before. And also I think they'd like to, uh, line up Kopech with a, uh, softer run of starts like the way they did the way they did with Reynaldo Lopez. So, you know, that might be a cause to wait, but also I think, you know, when it comes to, the White Sox in this rebuild, there is a little bit of perception is reality in that if they call up Kopech in the middle of a couple bad starts, even if he's, you know, ready and more qualified than uh, most of the rotation they're throwing out there when it comes to his stuff and, and, and you know, wouldn't cause him any uh, damage calling him up at this point, even if he did have a miserable start against Buffalo, I think there would be something for the White Sox to say like, well, you know, should he have a couple more bad starts in Chicago, then we're going to get the fingers pointed at us saying we rushed him. That's not a conversation we really want to have out there in the open. So we can avoid this just by waiting a week. I think that's, you know, when it comes to these rough starts, I don't think they're indicative of anything greater, but I think it makes the White Sox job a little harder to, um, you know, because I think when it comes to uh, promotions and young players, I think it does, uh, you know, it helps prospects a little bit if they're able to be called up in favorable situations to where, they don't have to answer all these questions, all these kind of existential crises questions about, um, did you think you're ready? You, well, you struggled in Charlotte and you carried them to Chicago. And I, so I think it's a little bit unfair to put them in a situation where their 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 backs are against the wall a bit and they have to answer questions that uh, uh, they don't want asked. So I think when it comes to, um, you know, like they did with Lopez last year, I think it does make some sense to call them up, you know, maybe when they're home, maybe when they're, you know, have a softer run of opponents and they can just say, um, 
you know, I guess even if it is a bit of a mirage at first that he's succeeding against weaker lineups, still gives a little bit of major league success to point to before any struggles come into play. But what if this is a tumble where he has now a couple bad weeks where three or four starts in a row, Kopech just doesn't seem to be on his A game. We saw a little bit of that last year. Of course, he reversed that course by having a tremendous seven starts in a row at Double A that merited his promotion to Triple A last year. Um, but what if the struggles linger a little bit longer, Jim? Well, it could be like a mid-season fatigue type thing, and so um, yeah, it still doesn't, I guess, change the answer in which I think the White Sox would want. You know, I guess depending on the length of the struggles, I think if he has a good start next time out, you know, maybe that just puts him back into play versus if he has four weak starts in a row, then they might want to, you know, have some evidence unless they just see it, you know, like he throws seven strong innings, strikes out 11 and leaves no doubts, then I can see them being called up. But, um, you know, given that it's going to be his first, you know, theoretically, it's going to be his first six month season. He had his first five month season last year. I can see them, you know, if he's battling some kind of mid-season fatigue thing like he did last year where he kind of hits a wall and has to uh, gather himself and climb over it, I can see them being cautious just because he will have an extra month of reps on him. And so it doesn't make sense to, I guess, try to push him through when he's not, uh, you know, maybe 100% just stuff, you know, not health-wise, but more of a stuff, crispness, command, uh, velocity-wise. So yeah, I can I can see them um, being a little bit cautious and maybe it you know, moves it back to July. But I think that also comes to uh, you know, the, what the rotation looks like. If Lopez is thrown well, if Shields is contributing, if um, you know, Covey still looks interesting, Rodon's pitch, you know, there might not be an easy way to make room for him. You know, like I guess if he's not thrown all that well, if he's not, you know, to use Rick Hans parlance, for, forcing the issue. So I think they will have to make, uh, or they will put Kopech in a situation where he has to make it happen and yeah, that start against Buffalo is not it, but um, I think it'll be a little bit more clear once Kopech has another start, once Rodon is up, and once we see what happens with Giolito, just exactly what that opening is. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see on which day Carlos Rodon will be making his first start for the 2018 season for the Chicago White Sox as transaction news to free up a spot on the 40-man rota- uh, roster. Again, the, when the White Sox put Carlos Rodon on the 60-day DL, they removed him during that time off the 40-man. They traded Brad Goldberg, who is now with the Arizona Diamondbacks, for, I believe, cash considerations. I did not see a player attached in that deal, Jim. Right. Uh, you know, Goldberg had some promise uh, throwing the mid to high 90s. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see and uh, what he can do with the Arizona Diamondbacks and if he can be a effective reliever for them as Arizona is trying to reverse the course. Arizona and the New York Mets. Man, it looked so good in the month of April for those two teams. And it's not looking good right now in June. So wish Brad Goldberg the best. It's worth noting with the 40-man roster, Ian Clark and just had a start uh, scratched with a groin issue. So, you know, he wasn't uh, having all that compelling a case before that happened for him staying on the 40-man roster, and that could be one way they go. I think that would be the right way to go. So that is the your 40-man mess that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The starting rotation, it'd be interesting to see how the White Sox shuffle in Carlos Rodon and see who gets shuffled out of the starting rotation this week. But again, today is a big day for the Chicago White Sox and as far as this rebuild, it is a critical day as the White Sox have the number four pick. Why is it critical? Because this is another great opportunity for the White Sox to add an impact player 
into their pipeline that could hopefully contribute to a Chicago White Sox roster when we think that the White Sox will be good starting in 2020 and beyond. And prior to today's draft, on Sunday night from Eric Loggenhagen, who is on our show this past Monday, as we talked a lot about what was happening on the backfields in Arizona, he's got some great stuff on Twitter about Luis Robert. Highly recommend it. He's got new videos of Robert in games. And we talked about, of course, the draft. He and Kylie McDaniel have been doing all the prospect writing for Fangraphs. I think they've been doing a terrific job this year covering the Major League Baseball draft because with Kylie's experience working with the Atlanta Braves and now coming back to Fangraphs, I think he can provide new insight into an industry where you have lead writers who have been doing this for decades and they have experience and the contacts and the connections to tell everyone what could possibly go down, but to try to give us additional insight on what are those conversations in the front office, that's something that Kylie can bring to the forefront. What we're going to play right now in this show is a one-minute clip from the Fangraphs audio podcast that was released Sunday night. It's hosted by Carson Satuli with guest Eric Loggenhagen, again, on our show this past Monday, and Kylie McDaniel discussing what they are hearing about the top 10 picks And this is what McDaniel had to say about the White Sox. There's multiple spots in the top 10 where we won't like call out names of executives, but there are clear power struggles uh, or a guy who can overrule the whole room with his power and say, yeah, you guys all want to draft this guy, but we're going to draft that guy. Uh, Yeah. Oh, by the way, it's only two lines. But you say, with regard to the White Sox entry and the possible pick of Brady Singer, we think there's a split in the room between Singer and Nick Madrigal, but we think the more decorated people in the room will lean this way. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, rich, that's a rich sentence. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, there's somebody said, I think it was on Twitter, like 3,000 words and only two lines on the White Sox. I was like, ah, those two lines say a lot of things that I'm pretty <laughs> sure you're not reading anywhere else. But we could call out names, but I think you can read that and kind of guess who's who. No, let's call it. Let's call it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, who is in the draft room that apparently would have an opinion that he would want to be heard that outranks everybody? All right. There, there's your clue. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, who is everyone else? <laughs> Jim, if Nick Madrigal goes number three overall to the Philadelphia Phillies, this is much to do about nothing. But if what Kylie McDaniel is is hearing is correct that the draft war room is not on the same page and quote-unquote decorated personnel are putting the foot down and saying this is the direction we are going. Isn't that concerning? A little bit. Um, When it comes to front offices and such, I think some level of disagreement is healthy because as we've seen with the White Sox and their front office and and, the way they haven't had success with free agent signings and the way that they've been kind of limited with the players they draft in the, um, you know, in their last couple of drafts being very college heavy. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of having divergent opinions. Um, and you know, Kenny is the boss. And so, yeah, I think when it comes to, uh, you know, situations where, you know, you have disagreements, you know, it is, um, his call. I would say that, you know, should it be his call, um, it would be nice to know that, <laughs> I guess, officially, like on the record. Cause I know, yeah, I know when it comes to, um, yeah, the, I haven't really had a lot of, um, yeah, I guess when it comes to the way fans view the rebuild, there's kind of a line drawn between uh, this last rebuild and the one that came before the first one was Kenny's and being aggressive. And that was his stamp. And now that they're 
laying back and uh, accumulating assets that feels more Rick Hani. Um, I don't tend to draw that firm line. I think it's kind of both their faults. And, and so I guess I don't have a whole lot of conviction in Han, you know, calling the shots because I think he's been, he called the shots the first time around, you know, by and large. So, yeah. And, and Han said the same thing. Like Han does not kind of deflect from the first failed rebuild. He says it's his fault and says it's, you know, they've been working together for more than a decade. So they're experienced in agreeing and disagreeing, working together and forming decisions based on themselves. So, um, it, it will be fascinating, though, should, you know, this become, you know, not just Fangraphs reporting it, but other outlets reporting it, too, to where, you know, say Madrigal's on the board and they pick Singer and, you know, it's, yeah, there's more than one outlet saying that was Kenny's pick. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily bad in and of itself should, you know, say Singer join the Sox and look great and give them an extra starting pitcher they didn't have and maybe makes any kind of setback for, uh, Giolito or Hanson easier to absorb. You know, I think there is some value there in Singer. So I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad pick. And I don't think all disagreement's wrong. But, you know, should Singer get off to a rough start and Madrigal look great um, initially? And, you know, that could only take maybe, especially pitchers, you know, should they have, you know, the injuries pitchers have, you know, could, uh, that, that's something that could be turned around pretty quickly. And so I would like to see, you know, whether they say, um, you know, I guess whether they admit that it was one pick or another, you know, whether there was any kind of longstanding disagreements that does cause some tension, you know, actual tension aside from professional disagreements just over the, for, uh, you know, over the natural course of making a decision. This, this one could be, could be interesting. And there are those that forwarded over the conversation that Nick Hostetler had with Chuck Garfine on the White Sox Talk podcast from NBC Sports Chicago, in which Matt, in which Hostetler went down with the process that they come up with the idea of this is who we feel comfortable taking number four overall, and then presented to Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf. It's just fascinating to me that Nohan, hmm. I'm a little befuddled that this is coming out on the the night before the draft and I get Kenny Williams scouting background and how useful that is and how Kenny Williams helped convince Jerry Reinsdorf to spend the $56 million on Luis Robert. Kenny Williams was a big factor in Jerry Reinsdorf feeling comfortable to signing a mostly unknown first baseman from Cuba in Jose Abreu to a six-year deal, and those moves have worked terrifically. However, the mess that the White Sox are in today was because of Kenny Williams' regime not drafting well, specifically 2011 and 2012. I don't think the White Sox have necessarily drafted well since Rickon has taken over, but in the last couple of years, it just felt like there was a more like concrete effort, like everybody was on the same page. And if what Kylie is reporting is correct, that there is some conflict and not everyone is on the same page saying that Brady Singer is a better choice than Nick Madrigal, but the ones that are decorated, quote unquote, that is what Fangraphs has written about the situation, are putting their foot down saying this is the direction that we're going. Again, they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. Right, we we have talked about this in the last couple of years. The White Sox are in this position because they have done a poor job scouting everywhere. You brought in a new guy to be the director of amateur scouting. Mm-hmm. 
It's only been two drafts. I think it takes four years to fully understand how good of a draft class is. I just don't think this decision should come down to Kenny Williams. I think you got to trust Nick Hostetler. Now, Nick Hostetler comes out and says, Brady Singer's my guy. This is a totally different story. But that is not what is being reported at the moment. That's not what we're talking about or the clip we just played earlier on. It sounds like Kenny Williams is saying Brady Singer's our guy and not everybody is on board with that. Yeah, and I guess the question there is, you know, given that the White Sox run a pretty tight ship, you know, who wants... Who wants you know the you know, who wants fan graphs to know that right Sc- scouts talk man how do you think we know all we yeah. know how do you think Jim Callis knows or Jonathan Mayo or the Baseball America guys scouts talk and you right on the money Jim but, but, right on yeah. the money somebody told yeah. Kylie about this because they're upset yeah but yeah and the phrase of like that you know it's one thing to say like you know you know either Singer or Madrigal still deciding great players both you know there's one way to say that but when it comes to kind of putting names on guys and, and, or without naming them, but, you know, describing them. That's mm-hmm. so, uh, that is, it, it does seem to point to dissatisfaction. Now, you know, like you said, if Madrigal's taken, then it's, uh, largely drama. That doesn't really, uh, reflect anything. Yep. Although, you know, who knows if it's you know, reflective of anything greater, but at least there's no practical application of it to this draft. But yeah, it's just, it's, the way it's phrased is, is, is seems to be trying to avoid blame. <sighs> I don't know what they're going to do, Jim. I don't know what they're going to do if Nick Madrigal and Brady Singer both dropped to number four in mock draft number two that I wrote back in May 4th. I said it was a coin flip between the two. And I think if that's what it was being reported, then we're, we'd be talking in a different tone going into the draft later this evening. But this does harken back to conversations you and I have had on this show that had a different name when even Chicago sports media was questioning, are the White Sox on the same page? You remember those conversations between Williams and Han? Yep. So it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. I was hoping that the White Sox were past this. And maybe they are. And again, this is much to do about nothing. But it's also a good thing to prepare for the worst. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens after it's reported. Nick Costello always puts a good face on. And I don't think he could ever throw anyone under the bus, uh, especially as far as to the public. And he will say the right things and say, Brady Singer was on top of our draft board. We feel incredibly comfortable with him. We like his demeanor on the mound. We love the success that he has. He's got terrific stuff. Great two-seam fastball. We believe in his slider and change up and think that he could be one of our best pitching prospects. And they would have taken him at number one. And they would have taken him number one. You bet, Jim. And if Singer goes number one overall to Detroit and they take Nick Nick Madrigal, they got a whole script for that one, too. (laughs) They would have taken him at number one. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. It'll be quite interesting. And uh, again, later today, starting at 6 p.m. Central Time, we will have the Sox Machine draft show as we will cover the Chicago White Sox first pick fourth overall. It'll be exciting as I'll be joined by Jim Osborne and Brian Billick as we break down the White Sox first pick. So it'd be fun times. And again, you can listen to that stream on SoxMachine.com or on Mixler.com slash SoxMachine will be tweeted out on social media 
You can follow us again at Socks Machine, or you can follow me at Socks Machine underscore Josh. So we'll see how it all goes down. But again, today is draft day. Jim, you and I will reconvene in P.O. Socks. But joining us next is Burt Granger from 2080 Baseball. Let's stop talking about the White Sox drama. Let's talk about the prospects themselves as he'll give us his insight on who he thinks are the best prospects in this draft and who he thinks the White Sox should take number four overall next on the Sox Machine podcast. Before we speak with Burke, a couple of words from our sponsors. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I use SeatGeek all of the time to go to Chicago White Sox games, and I realized that tweeting out our promo codes, a lot of you recently tried SeatGeek as well to take advantage of their offers for our listeners to go to White Sox games, especially this past weekend with the Milwaukee Brewers in town. And if you haven't used SeatGeek before, let me tell you why I use SeatGeek. It helps me save time and money as they search multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And on the deals part, SeatGeek has the deal score that helps me get the most bane for my buck as SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Best of all, Sox Machine listeners can save in a couple of ways. One, if you've never used SeatGeek before to buy tickets, you get $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. Now, for those that have used SeatGeek before, SeatGeek is running a promotion that if you use promo code MACHINE, just MACHINE, you get to save $10 off on any ticket purchase for Major League Baseball. I've taken advantage of this deal. I got some great tickets for the White Sox Angels Series in September. Hopefully, there'll be some call-ups, and hopefully, I'll get to see Shohei Otani and Mike Trout in the lineup for the Angels. It'll be a very fun weekend to go to games and I highly recommend taking advantage of these two offers. So again, if you haven't used SeatGeek before, download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Use promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase. Or if you have used SeatGeek before, go to your SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and save $10 off until the month of June on Major League Baseball ticket purchases using promo code MACHINE. There are a million things demanding your time. Contact lenses shouldn't be one of them. That's why we are excited about a great new company called Simple Contacts that is making the process of renewing your prescription and buying contacts, well, simple. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to get your contact lens prescription renewed and stocked up on your brand of contact lenses. Get this, instead of taking time off and spending hours at the doctor just to renew your prescription, you can do it online in under five minutes. This is vision care for the 21st century. Here's how it works. Take a quick self-guided vision test from your smartphone or computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor in 24 hours and you receive a renewed prescription and reorder of your favorite brand of contacts. 
If you have an unexpired prescription, you can use them too. Just upload a photo of it or your doctor's information and order your lenses in minutes for a great price. They do all the hard work for you. Buying more contacts has never been easier, and why should it be hard in the first place, right? That's why Simple Contacts was created. Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses and their prices are unbeatable. Plus, the vision test is just $20. Compare that with an annual appointment, which could be up to $200 without insurance. Shipping is free, and best of all, our listeners get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order. To save $30 on your contact lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com socks and enter the promo code SOCKS at checkout. I want to mention that this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You still need those occasionally, but it is the most convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contact lenses. So again, check out Simple Contacts and get $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com socks and enter promo code socks at checkout. Save yourself time, money, and a headache with Simple Contacts. Today is the day as the Chicago White Sox will be selecting fourth overall and 46th overall as the Major League Baseball draft will cover the first two rounds. There's a lot of speculation on what teams will do today, but I think it's important to have a proper understanding on the quality of players that could be selected today. And that's why I bring in Burke Granger from 2080 Baseball to the show. And hello, Burke. Thanks for coming on again. Hello, Josh. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy uh, coming on to talk to you. Yeah, the the day of, we finally made it. And I'm 75% sure that the Detroit Tigers at pick number one are going to take Casey Mize. And if we are talking about teams taking the absolute best prospects at their draft slots, and nobody's going to get cute and try to sign guys to underslot deals, Mize is still number one, right? Agreed. Yeah. So everything that we're kind of hearing would, is that Mize would be number one, especially if we're going on talent alone. Heard a, heard a couple of rumors that have since kind of died down that they could be targeting like a Jared Kalanick there as, as an underslot pre-draft deal, but haven't heard much buzz on those lately. So so I'm back to thinking that this is most likely Mize. All right. So that makes things easier. Uh, at number two overall, we've heard a discussion between the dream of for the Giants maybe finding a future heir to the catching position from Buster Posey, Georgia Tech's Joey Bart. But we've also been hearing an underslot possibility with California prep right-hand pitcher Cole Wynn. Uh, first, what are your thoughts about Georgia Tech's Joey Bart? So Bart, I wouldn't have ranked as like the second best prospect in the draft if we're talking about total talent. Um, now, you, you don't draft for need in the draft, but that said, Bart does make a lot of sense to the Giants for the reason you mentioned as, as the heir apparent to Buster Posey, who will likely be moving off the catcher position to, to lengthen his career there. Um, Bart's a really good catcher. He's, he, he's distanced himself from the rest of the guys behind the dish in this class in that he's always been a guy with a good arm and a, and a good bat. His receiving has really taken a step forward in his collegiate career. Uh, and he calls his own games. This is not something that, that a lot of college catchers do. So that's a good attribute to, to look at when you're evaluating a college catcher, because that's a big adjustment. Once they get to pro ball, calling their own pitches and handling the pitching staff, Bart's doing that right now. So that's impressive. 
Yeah, watching the Florida-Jacksonville game Saturday night, it, it still throws me off that the catcher is looking into the dugout, and then they're not they're giving like one quick sign and then Brady Sanders like ready to go. Whereas right. Bart is doing his due diligence with even scouting uh, as far as the other team and having a good understanding to try to call the best game possible. Just that Georgia Tech was lacking this year as far as pitching talent. And that's why they didn't make the regionals this year. Uh, but Cole Wynn, I don't know much about Cole Wynn. And he could possibly be the second pick uh, in today's yeah. Major League Baseball draft. Uh, what should we know about Cole Wynn if the Giants decide to go that route? So Cole Wynn's a guy that I like a lot. I've seen I've seen him twice. Saw him once there in your neck of the woods in Chicago at the Under Armour All-American game at Wrigley. Um, at that time, he was pitching for a high school in, in Colorado, and I'm, I'm, the name is escaping me right now. But before his senior year, he transfers to Orange Lutheran in California, which is a hotbed of high school baseball talent. And he did that to challenge himself and to kind of elevate his profile. Well, that has paid dividends. Um, saw him again this year at the, the NHSI in Cary, North Carolina, when he was pitching for Orange Lutheran, and he was just lights out. He had the most impressive performance there. A real competitive guy was borderline uh, trash talking and taunting the other team after he'd strike them out. But a guy, a guy that can challenge you with the fastball, a mid nineties fastball, develop secondary stuff. Um, now, being a prep righty, there's there's a lot of risk there in, in this draft. In the draft history, there's a not. A, it's it's just a profile that the success rate isn't as high as some of these other positions, but. Um, again, Cohen probably a top 10, 11 talent for me, not, not the second overall talent, but so if he were to go to the giants here, I think it would be an underslot deal, but, but one that's defensible in my opinion. Okay. Then picks three through five. Well, what we have been hearing for the past month is Alec Bum to the Phillies, the white Sox choosing between Nick Madrigal and Brady Sainer. And the Cincinnati Reds taking whoever's left over. Uh, starting yep. with the Phillies at, at number three. I still think it's going to be Alec Baum. We're, we're hearing some rumors lately that that's not 100% certain that they could go with Nick Magical. But what are your thoughts about Wichita State's third baseman, Alec Baum? There has been some good history as of late taking third collegiate third baseman. Teams have had success like Chris Bryant, but Chris Bryant had an amazing junior year. And Alec Baum has had a good year at Wichita State, but not at the level of Chris Bryant. Uh, what do you? What kind of player do you think Alec Baum could be if he is drafted third overall to the Philadelphia and what his ceiling is? So Alec Baum reminds me a little bit of of um, Chris Bryant. Now, it's, it's a lofty comparison, and I don't – I'm not saying that I think Baum's going to – be an MVP winner in his second year in Major League Baseball, but he's got that big, tall frame and and some of the best raw power in this class coming from the right hand side. Um, he's not as good of a defender as Bryant was at third base or is at third base, um, but he's also pretty athletic for his size. He's like six four, six five, two twenty, moves pretty well, but those his feet can get a little. Uh, clunky at third base and then that causes some issues for his throwing arm is an above average to plus throwing arm but that causes some issues with the accuracy and throwing across the diamond um i think bomb would be the pick here probably for the phillies um he's he's a guy who is in my personal like top three so so 
because of that power profile. What I I think he is among among these like top five guys in this class, he's the most likely that can be that thirty five to forty home run star. Uh, but there's also some risk there that that the hit tool won't be there. He's got those big long long arms. Sometimes those guys have trouble getting to that pitch on the inner third of the plate. What when I've seen Bomb and I saw him live. Um, Earlier this spring, at a trip to North Carolina, he didn't have that trouble getting to that inside pitch. He, he was able to pull those hands in and pull that pitch down down the third base line, while also being able to cover cover the plate adequately, get to the pitch on the outside corner, and drive that out of the park to the right field. And then I've been burying the lead here because all White Sox fans have been talking about the last week is Nick Madrigal. Or Brady Singer. That's what the rumors have, that the White Sox are deciding those two players at pick number four. It sounds like they most likely will go with Brady Singer fourth overall. And I want to get your thoughts because for what I, I think for us, we've been overanalyzing uh, these two players. And right. at the point, we White Sox fans just may talk ourselves out of Nick Madrigal and Brady Sinner before they're even picked to the White Sox. Uh, but I, I want to start the conversation with Nick Madrigal because obviously when you talk about Madrigal, the first thing everybody brings up is, is his size, that he is undersized. He does play second base. He plays a good second base, but the White Sox have a good second baseman and hopefully is part of their long-term future in Yohan Mikata. Uh, but regarding disregarding, I guess, that point of view as far as what Madrigal's possible future would be with the White Sox, what is your scouting report for Nick Madrigal, Burke? So Madrigal, for me, has the best bat-to-ball skills in this draft. So if he swings at a pitch, he's going to make contact with it, and most likely he's going to barrel it somewhere. Um, I sat on Madrigal for a few games last summer for the collegiate national team. And, and for a few games that there were, there was a scout that I was sitting next to who noted like Madrigal, the last, he, for the last 25 or so pitches that Madrigal swung at, he's made contact with. And that, that's outstanding at at this level of play. Um, He only has five strikeouts on the year compared to, to 13 walks. Now he's missed a lot of time with a broken wrist this season. Um, but he's a plus runner. He could steal 20 bases for you a year at, at the next level. Tremendous first step quickness, both on the bases and in the field. And I think he's a gold glove caliber defender at second. Um, moves well to either side, has soft hands and a quick exchange. Um, so these are the, the good things about Madrigal. Those that are critical will point out that that he is likely limited to second base, at least in my opinion. I think he could handle spot duty at shortstop, but it's not a long-term uh, solution there. Um, his arm just doesn't have that carry across the diamond. Um, he also doesn't have much power. So I I don't think he'll develop much power either. He, he's 5'7", 160, so he's the size of your average like middle schooler. Um, this. There are small guys impacting the game more so now than than 20 years ago, but there's still not a ton of them. He's not he's not a Jose Altuve type. He doesn't have that type of strength where he can hit 20 home runs a year. Um, a, a decent comp would be a guy like Dustin Pedroia, this blue collar fan favorite type of guy. And Pedroia was, you know, when everything aligns, Pedroia was an MVP caliber player on a World Series team. So I think the White Sox or anyone would would take that. But the risk here is that there's so much value tied to Madrigal's hit tool. So I think he will be a plus hitter, but because he's not going to hit those 20 home runs, he really needs to be a 300 hitter to fit in that 
top five overall pick profile. I think he will do that, but there's still a lot of risk. Now to the flip side with Brady Singer. What do you think are his best skills and how do you evaluate him overall? So Singer might be the most polarizing player in this class or according to the the scouting community or the prospecting community. Um, he seems to be either viewed as a top 10 prospect or a late first rounder. I'm, I'm in the former category. I like him uh, quite a bit. So he was a second round pick out of high school by the Blue Jays. He didn't sign because of a rumor. Um, or the rumor is why he didn't sign is that there was something in the medical that caused the deal to fall apart. He's taken the ball consistently at, at Florida at the highest stage of college baseball. It hasn't shown any signs of an injury. His mechanics are a bit unusual, um, which when you couple that with the medical rumor, that could scare some folks. Um, so even though he's like 6'5", he's not one of those guys that comes completely over the top to create downhill, plan- downhill plane like these guys who are that tall could do. He has a low three-quarters delivery, and that arm kind of drags behind his momentum that's heading towards home plate, which adds extra stress on the arm. Um The throwing motion works for him, though. It provides a ton of deception to righties. Uh, It gets movement. There's a lot of sync on the fastball, more so than most college pitchers. Uh, It runs in on the arm side, uh, and he he has the ability to pitch inside uh, and challenge hitters inside more than most most college pitchers do. Um, He also wouldn't be the first tall, skinny guy with a low arm slot to succeed. I think it works – Pretty well for Chris Sale so far. Um, doesn't mean Singer's going to be Chris Sale, but <laughs> he's not going to miss as many bats as him. But he, he's more polished at this stage than Sale was. Uh, he's and, and Sale's a guy who was in the majors like a year after he was drafted. So that says something about the history and the track record that Singer has in the best the best conference in college baseball. Um, it's it's worth noting that. Um, I think Singer is probably the second best college pitcher in this class behind Mize. Um, so if the White Sox take him fourth overall, I wouldn't have tremendous issues with that if I were a White Sox fan. One thing that White Sox fans are worried about that are in the skeptical crowd when it comes to Brady Singer is that a lot of the things that they hear are the same things that they heard about Carson Fulmer. And Carson Fulmer obviously is going through his struggles right now, bouncing between Triple A and the White Sox. Is that a fair comp between Brady Senior and Carson Fulmer? Or do you think Senior is a more polished and better prospect than Carson Fulmer was when the White Sox drafted Fulmer seventh overall? I, I, I can see the similarities in that they both have some of the same warts. Uh, and that, that herky-jerky delivery that people like to criticize um, – but Singer is more prototypical in in his frame, and he has a a, a longer track record as a starter. Uh, Fulmer was a reliever for Vanderbilt until his junior year, then kind of was just thrust into that Friday night role. Um, Friday night role ahead of Walker Bueller, which says something about how well he pitched as a junior. But Singer has been. Uh, one of the premier pitchers, you know, he was he was the Saturday guy behind Alex Fiedo last year on Florida's College World Series team. He he's a starting pitcher in my book without question. Whereas Fulmer, at this stage, people were still debating whether or not he's a starter or a reliever, and that debate's still going on. Um, 
I think Singer has has better command, more movement on the fastball. I, I like I like the secondary stuff. I like him a little bit better than I than I liked Fulmer at this stage. All right, so if you were hired as a consultant to the White Sox and they ask you which player would you select fourth overall, would you go with Nick Madrigal or would you go with Brady Singer? Are these my only two options, or do I? These are the- your only two <laughs> options. Okay. If it were me, then I would I would go with Singer in this case. Um, for some of the reasons you touched on, again, we don't draft for need in, in the draft, but Yoan Mankata is locked up at second base. You, you hope, the hope there is that he'll he'll be kind of the face of the franchise for the next several years. Tim Anderson's kind of locked up at shortstop, so you got that middle secured. Singer is you're you're just taking another you're buying another lottery ticket that these pitchers are going to pan out with Singer. He's the potent, a potential for me to be a number three on a very good team. Um, so he, if, if I'm going with, if I'm buying a lottery ticket, it would have Brady Singer's name on it instead of Nick Madrigal's. Any other names you would consider fourth overall for the White Sox? Yeah, I, I, I'd like Travis Swaggerty here. Uh, and he's a guy that I would consider if I'm the White Sox. He, he provides a little more of a team need. He's the center fielder for South Alabama, a center field, a true center fielder, five tool prospect, a guy who I think, um, a, a very good chance to stick in center field, five tool talent, no doubt, um, no doubt center fielder with pop, a guy who can run, um, I'd also give them maybe a 10% chance they take like Jonathan India here, the, the third baseman from from the University of Florida. Um, it, it's worth noting that I think um, Rick Hahn and, and Kenny Williams were both at an Auburn and Florida, Florida game earlier this year when Casey Mize and Brady Singer squared off. It's one of the reasons they're, they're kind of tied to Singer. But in that game, Jonathan India hit a home run off Mize in the first inning that kind of turned heads. So... I give them an outside shot of taking India here too. All right. So outside of pick number four and just looking at the draft overall, who do you think, I guess, which prospects Burke in this class have the biggest, or I should say highest ceilings. We love, we at 20, 2080 baseball, we love Jared Kalanick. Um, He's the number two guy in this class for us. It's not looking like he's going to go number two, but we think he's the best high school hitter in the class, uh, average or better across all five tools, um, could, a chance to stick in center. Worst case scenario for me is he, he ends up in, in right field as a power hitting right fielder. It's just risky to project high school hitters because the track you're, – you're watching guys tee off on 80-mile-per-hour fastballs and, and wondering how that's going to translate to professional baseball. But as I watched a lot of these summer showcases – over the summer, Jared Kalanick, where, where all these other guys are, are trying to sell out for power at these big league ballparks at Wrigley and at Petco Park, trying to hit home runs. Jared Kalanick was taking professional at bats, uh, professional batting practices, you, you know, flicking the ball the other way, hitting it, hitting it where, where the pitch is thrown. He, he's just a guy who, who has more hit polish, uh, that's, that's beyond his years. So he's a guy we like a lot. Um, I could see him being kind of one of the the top players in this class. And then on the flip side with a floor, which prospects do you think have the highest floors? Highest floor, um, I, I'd say Joey Bart would be one because th- 
threshold that you need to meet to be a a successful major league catcher isn't that high. like he could hit 250 with with 10 to 15 home runs and still be a successful major league catcher. And I think he's capable of doing that for, for some of the reasons we stated earlier. He's calling his own games. He's got a cannon behind behind the plate. His receiving skills ha- have been improved uh, throughout the course of his collegiate career. And then the hit tool is legit, and he's and he's got some pop there. So he offers a lot that I think are, are contribute to the recipe for succeed for succeeding behind the plate. All right, and then a sleeper, someone that we will look back at this draft class in two to three years, Burke, and tell ourselves, man, how did so many teams pass this guy up? Is there anyone that you can think of that you consider to be a sleeper in this draft class? There's a couple guys that I think have, have crept down into sleeper category. You wouldn't have called them sleepers at the beginning of the season, but Shane McClanahan out of, the, out of South Florida, whose draft stock is, is continuing to fall because of really poor control and command is still a lefty who throws a hundred miles per hour. So if he doesn't succeed as a, as a starter in professional baseball, that's still a weapon that you have in the bullpen who's got a really good change up too. So he's a guy that I like who when I think when we look at this and he's picked, I don't know, anywhere from the, from 25 to 35. And we're like, wow, how did so many teams sleep on Shane McClanahan? I just think they kind of have overreacted to his, his recent struggles. Griff Conine's another one um, from, from Duke, a guy who we thought was one of the more polished guys heading into this draft struggled a lot in the first half of the season has really turned it on. uh, And now is hitting like 280 with a 400 on base percentage and, and 15 home runs. Numbers that if we said at the end of the year, these are these are going to be his numbers, no one would have been that surprised. Um, but how he got there was struggling so much. He was hitting like 220 halfway through the, the season, really turned it on. And then this past weekend at regionals struggled again. So he's a streaky hitter. Um, but I think he fits in that that 25 to 35 range as well. And a guy who could you know, provide a lot of power out of right field. And could be one of these guys that we that we felt we all kind of whiffed on when we look back at this draft in a couple of years. Last question. The Chicago White Sox right now have the best odds of having the number one pick in the 2019 draft. So we're going to be right back here again, Burke, uh, next yeah. year. Uh, who are some names that White Sox fans should start getting to know that will have some early hype in next year's draft? That's a great pick. That's a great question. So, um and I'm going to start scouting. <laughs> you know, we have the we have the draft right now, the 2018 draft. In a week, I leave for Tampa to go start scouting the 2019 class. So, not getting much of a break. And I'll and I'll spend a year evaluating these 2019 guys. So, the the three guys that jump out to me are are Bobby Witt Jr., the son of Major Leaguer Bobby Witt, a shortstop in in Texas who is committed to. Ooh. Where is he committed to? <laughs> I'm drawing a blank, but he, he's he's kind of the, the top prep bat right now. Uh, a guy who we think can stick up the middle, whether it's whether it's shortstop or an offensive minded second baseman. Um, Reese Hines is another powerful guy, a, a shortstop, third base prospect, right handed hitter. Guy I saw at Wrigley as an underclassman at the Under Armour All American 
classic with a, t- a ton of power in the home run derby. And this is like a 16 year old kid wasn't happy with his performance. So he just snaps his wood bat over his knee, uh, just man strength. And then Hunter Barco, who is a left-handed pitcher out of, out of Florida as a, a Virginia commit. He, he's probably your, your top prep pitching prospect right now. All right. So. Worst for wit. That's that'll be the hashtag. <laughs> uh, for White Sox fans. Uh, by the way, the college commitment I believe is Oklahoma for Bobby Wett Jr. Yes, you are correct. I have yeah. some bad news for Oklahoma. You're probably not getting Bobby <laughs> Wett Jr. <laughs> oh, you can read Burke's excellent work evaluating the prospects for either the 2018 draft or, as he mentioned, uh, starting next week, the 2019 draft at 2080 Baseball. Dot com, And they also have a very insightful podcast as well that I highly recommend checking out. You could follow Burke on Twitter at Burke Granger, as I'm sure he'll be giving his thoughts after each pick on what each team decides to go with. And Burke, as always, thanks for coming on the show and providing awesome, insightful analysis of what could happen today. Thanks so much, Josh. Anytime. It was a lot of fun. Welcome to the Meyer League Report. As always, we'll start in Charlotte, where Jordan Stevens is as consistent as Michael Kopech isn't. Stevens is 4 for 4 in quality starts, throwing at most 6 in a third innings and allowing at most two earned runs. Kopech, on the other hand, had massive problems against Buffalo on Saturday. He allowed seven runs over two innings, during which he threw just 23 of 53 pitches for strikes. Neither is the most qualified starter as long as Carlos Rodon is rehabbing, although that should be over pretty soon. Rodon threw five innings and 92 pitches against Buffalo on Sunday, so it seems like he should be pitching for the White Sox come Friday. Aside from Kevin Smith coming off the disabled list, there still aren't any position players of note, so let's head down to Birmingham, where Zach Collins has carried a strong May into June. Collins hit his eighth homer of the year on Sunday, part of a two-for-three day. Since he flipped the switch in late April, he's hitting .344 with a .503 on-base percentage and .585 slugging percentage. That's 37 games where he's been safe more than he's been out, which is nuts. I would have named him the position player of the month, but the White Sox gave that nod to Eloy Jimenez, who is merely on a 13-game hitting streak. If you come to expect greatness from Collins and Jimenez, then the week's biggest story might have been Spencer Adams, who finally delivered a great start by throwing eight shutout innings against Chattanooga on Thursday. It's by far his best start of the season, and he'll need more of them, as it only lowered his ERA to 550. Still, he's in better shape than Ian Clarkin, who was late scratch for his start this weekend due to a groin issue. In Winston-Salem, the highly touted outfield logjam largely cooled off in May, but Joel Booker regained some heat by reaching base six times total over Saturday and Sunday. He now leads the team in both average at 288 and OBP at 384. Luis Alexander Pasabe has opened up a big lead in slugging, what with Mike Rodolfo slumping in the power department. Adolfo had just seven extra base hits and one homer in May, dropping his OPS below 800. I note all this because Luis Robert could be back in the very near future. Extended spring training ends today, and he'll need all the playing time early to knock off the rust. Dylan Cease allowed just a solo homer and two walks over his six innings on Sunday, continuing a strong string of starts from dash pitching. He lowered his ERA to 281, which still trails Bernardo Flores' 269 for the team lead. And you're not going to believe this, but the Canapolis Intimidators have finally lost two consecutive games. They're still atop their division at 34-19, but defense has been a bit of an issue of late. Luis Curbelo's bat is starting to heat up after joining the team, as he has a four-game hitting streak. He also has four errors at third base in just seven games. His defense is going to be a project, but as the only 20-year-old on the roster, his age is an excuse. 
Otherwise, Kannapolis' offensive stars are still starring. Laz Rivera is hitting 354, and Luis Gonzalez has raised his average to 330 as the strikeouts have come down. The pitching has been largely solid, if you can excuse the defense. Blake Battenfield has a 1.59 ERA and is coming off being named the organization's pitcher of the month, and Lincoln Hedsman is soldiering on after fellow Louisville Cardinal Cade McClure was lost to the year due to knee surgery. The Intimidators are in first place by two and a half games with two weeks left before the All-Star break. The Sox may want them to lock in a postseason appearance with the first half championship and the extra games those ensure before breaking up the team. That's it for the Meyer League Report. Now on to P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, or helping support the show and sign up to become a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash Sox Machine and rejoining me on the podcast to answer your questions is Jim Margulis and Jim first question comes from Russell the canine and Russell is asking why has Adam Engel looked less awful for the past few weeks well I think when you're watching Engel hit I think um, I'll start with what he can't do and he still can't hit fastballs like that are belt higher higher he still has problems you know catching up to not even necessarily elevated fastballs but just nothing that isn't you know, couldn't be described as lower in the zone so, you know, that seems like it's a weakness, seems like it's always going to be a weakness. So when it comes to angle succeeding, he kind of really has to make hay on stuff that's lower in the zone, whether it's fastballs or breaking balls, you know, whether, you know, I would say thigh high and lower. And that's what seems to be happening now. He seems to be getting around and stuff more, uh, fewer pop-ups, uh, able to handle the low and inside pitch better, able to get around with it, hook it to left field. He wasn't doing that before. So I'm guessing it's something to where, you know, either he's opening up faster, he's getting the hips through the zone, you know, getting the, the, the barrel to the zone faster and able to, you know, square those pitches up more. Cause yeah, I was looking at his, um, you know, looking at his rates and his ground balls. He's pulling the ball more, he's swinging more. So I'm guessing, you know, it's probably swinging earlier in the count and trying to take advantage of those pitches, you know, that he can, um, get around on and he's whiffing a bit less on pitches above the zone. So I'm guessing he's trying to lay off those pitches as much as possible and try not to make his at bats come down to one fastball belt higher, higher. I think that's, you know, if when he gets in those positions, then I think he's a lost cause, but I think as long as he can handle, as long as you can watch angle hit and see like, well, okay, that's a pitch he can drive. That's the kind of, uh, Oh, he threw him a slider and it was just blow his knees over the plate. He can handle that pitch. When he's at least got something going for him, then, you know, it's not necessarily a matter of just the pitcher throwing him anything to get him out. It makes the pitcher execute just a little bit. And, you know, given how many teams there are and given how many pitchers, uh, how many teams or how many pitchers teams go through, there are going to be pitchers who can't execute that reliably to where, you know, even if they know that high fastballs get him out, they can't always do it. So I think with Angle, we're seeing that adequacy come from just having pitches he can drive. And so hopefully, you know, given that his mechanics are always high maintenance and seem to be touch and go um that hopefully this isn't him syncing up and he can just fall out of sync as easily and take another month to get him back but there is seem there seems to be something he can do when it comes to offense that you know where he can contribute just by finding pitches you know having more pitches that he can do things with 
Thank you so much for your question, Russell. Our next question comes from Azinrec. And Azinrec is asking, did the White Sox keep to pass practice and draft mostly college players this week? What kinds of promotions across the system should we expect in the coming days? Well, it's going to be a little bit tricky with Luis Robert coming back. I think that might be the first thing that forces the Sox to uh, do something. Because you mentioned in the Meyer League report that extended spring training is ending. So it's going to be to an A-ball affiliate one way or another. And I'm guessing it's still going to be Winston-Salem, You know, even if that might be a touch above his abilities right now based on the, the rust he has to knock off. You know, that's where he got his feet wet. That's where he knows Omar Vizquel. You know, it seems to be the kind of environment the White Sox want for him. And maybe his early performances won't matter so much as much as it's about, you know, forming good habits and being comfortable personally stateside playing every day. So if that happens, then I imagine you'll see, you know, Luis Alexander Pasabe go up, maybe Joel Booker. Um, you know, that would be kind of the surprising one. But when it comes to, you know, who's performing, you know, Blake Rutherford is... You know, his average is okay, but I think he's falling back to the, the, the thing where he doesn't hit for that much power. Mike Rodolfo has slowed down a little bit, and he's still got the elbow thing, so we'll see, you know, what the White Sox do with him. But, um, you know, it seems if they're going to promote two guys to make room for uh, both uh, you know, Robert and maybe Luis Gonzalez, who is, you know, performing really well in Kannapolis and is too good for that level, then I think two outfielders would go up to Birmingham. And, you know, of course, you'd have Eloy Jimenez going up to Charlotte, and who knows how much time he'll spend there. Um, the other interesting ones could be middle infield at the lower levels, you know, especially say if they draft Nick Madrigal, um, you know, if they start him in Kannapolis and I think you'd see you know, Laz Rivera go up to Winston-Salem, Rivera's hitting 350 in Kannapolis. And, you know, it's hard to tell how much of that is just him being too experienced for the Sally League, um, given that it's not a particularly strong Sally League uh, this year. Um, there's not a whole lot of elite um, prospects in that particular league. So I think you could see him go up to Winston-Salem because there's a bit of a, a bit of a gap, you know, Irizarry's mildly intriguing, but Winston-Salem is everybody. So I could see that being a move to accommodate an infielder. Um, you could see some pitchers move. Um, I guess it depends on, you know, what Alec Hansen is, but, you know, Kannapolis has a whole bunch of collegiate starters who probably should be Winston-Salem, whether it's Blake Battenfield or Lincoln Hensman. Uh, Park is another one that could be moved up if that happens. And maybe uh, Bernardo Flores goes to Birmingham or Dylan Cease, depending on... I think Cease, it comes down to just building up innings. It's easier easier for him to build up innings in Winston-Salem than Birmingham. So they might want to hold him down, but I can see Flores going up. Or maybe Jimmy Lambert, you know, if they like uh, how he's going. But um, yeah, you could see some pitchers on the move. Um, otherwise, um, given that they haven't drafted many... High school prospects, given that Great Falls doesn't really seem to have anybody, um, yeah, I don't think Great Falls roster is going to be, um, I guess, stuffed with these uh, prep prospects who normally fill out those ranks and have been hanging out in Arizona for the first couple months. I could see a lot of college players ending up there and then um, maybe promoting guys after a few weeks from there. But I think immediately outfield will be the big one just because of Luis Roberts and... Yeah, maybe Kannapolis is just a little bit too strong pitching-wise to keep them all of them down in low A. I do think it's worthwhile to call out that the AA All-Star game is June 19th. It is in Birmingham. So the White Sox keep Eloy Jimenez in Birmingham so he can be part of that All-Star game festivities. And then after the first half, they call him up to Charlotte. That could help as well. You're really about Birmingham's bottom line. I... Th- <laughs> 
Dude, I think I, I, I'm running out of logical reasons, Jim, of why Aloy Jimenez is still in Birmingham. That's all I've got now, man, is the bottom line. Because I feel like, uh, is that Charlie Day in that scene? And it's always sunny in Philadelphia where he's like pointing at like all these billboards. He's got yarn everywhere. That's what yeah. I feel right now. Trying to figure out why Jimenez is not in Charlotte because all he does is keep hitting. I'm losing my mind over why Aloy Jimenez and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are still in double-A. I still do not get it. But whatever, whatever. If it helps Birmingham make some cash, they were great to us. By all means, help Birmingham make some cash. But I do think Aloy Jimenez is going to be part of the Futures game in Washington, D.C. in July. Uh, But again, for the minor leagues, their halfway point is middle of June. So everything ties in well together. And uh, we'll see if Jim is right with as far as the movement across affiliates. But the bigger question, Jim, comes from John. And John is asking the question that I think a lot of people would like to hear from you on who do you think the White Sox should take fourth overall today in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft? I like Madrigal. I think out of all the guys available... Um, you know, theoretically available, I would like him the most. Just because watching the Astros, watching the Cubs, you know, with their rebuilds. And, oh, I think the Astros are more pertinent because they, you know, they had Correa, they have Altuve, they, and then they drafted Bregman, and they didn't know exactly where they're going to play Bregman, but they liked him towards the top of the draft. They picked him. They made room for him. Um, you know, they got Yuli Gurriel, made room for him. So, I mean, when it comes to infielders, when it comes to infielders who can hit... And, you know, really hit. And I think Madrigal can, uh, especially he's doing this when he's not, you know, he had the wrist injury, right? Broke his wrist. Yep. Um, yeah. So, like, given that he's doing this after that, I like the upside, you know, it's showing what he's it's showing more than what he's shown already. So I think I'm leaning that way. What about you? Since you know more about this than I do, I kind of <laughs> you kind of immerse yourself in this. I'm more of a casual a uh, generalist when it comes to the first round, you know more than I do. So I will yield the floor to you for the ultimate verdict. Well, the next two drafts I think are important for the White Sox because if they're going to have another top five pick again next year, this is two opportunities for them to add significant pieces to the pipeline, right? I think it's worthwhile to be to try to go as in-depth as possible and what could happen in this draft and plan on doing it this again in 2019, uh, especially if the White Sox have the number one pick. That's a whole different conversation than discussing who they'll take fourth overall. Uh, hopefully, they will stop having top 10 picks. Uh, then the draft won't matter as much. But for this draft in 2018, uh my draft board, if I was the scouting director, it'd be Casey Mize, number one. It'd be Joey Bart, number two. It'd be Nick Madrigal, number three. It'd be Brady Sinner, number four. It'd be Jonathan India, number five. It'd be Alec Bum, number six. And it'll be Jared Kellick, Kellick, number seven, the high school outfielder from Waukesha West. And that's how I'd play it out. And like we spoke with Burke earlier in the show, if the Tigers take Casey Mize... Boom, that's number one gone. Giants take Joey Bart. Boom, that's the second guy off the board. That means it's magical left. And if the Phillies take Alec Bum, which my final guesses on the mock draft will be 
also released later today on SoxMachine.com. I still have the Phillies taking Alec Baum. Uh, so that means that the best player available on the board would be Nick Madrigal for the White Sox at number four. And I would like the White Sox to take Nick Madrigal over Brady Singer for a lot of the points that you made, Jim, is look at what the Astros have been able to do by just disregarding on what is on their current roster and just drafting the best position players available and then finding spots for them. Because we don't know what's going to happen in three to four years. We don't know on if Yohan Ricotta is best at second base or if maybe he can move over to third base because the White Sox just don't have deep enough pockets to get the Manny Machados or the Nolan Arenados or the Josh Donaldsons of the world in free agency. That they have to find another solution at third base that Mikado maybe can move over there. But watching Madrigal, what I know is that he's got the best ball, uh, bat-to-ball skills out of all hitters in the college level. I think that is something that's totally different that he would bring to the White Sox farm system that does need better middle infield talent because there's just not a lot of depth right now. I mean, God forbid if Tim Anderson or Yohan Makata had a season-long injury. I don't know how the White Sox would address this because they're pretty thin right now at second and shortstop. And with Magical defensively, I wrote it on Sunday. I even posted videos that I think he's shorthanded at second base. He does a terrific job transition on double plays when he is making the throw from second base. He's got a strong enough arm for that. I think he could be an above average player. What would stop him from being an all-star is the power, but maybe that is something that could be taught. And that's the question that I've been asking since I did the first round uh MLB draft report about Magical Jim in late April is can power be taught? Can you teach a, a hitter to have more power in their swing and to hit for more home runs? And I do think the answer is yes, because look around Major League Baseball. Mookie Betts has 17 home runs. He's on pace to hit more than 40 home runs this year. Clearly, he has made adjustments, and we have seen other hitters make adjustments. Mike Trout could hit more than 50 home runs this year, Jim, and he is the best player in the world, and he's still making adjustments to hit for more power. So I do think it is something that Nick Madrigal can be taught, and that is why I think Nick Madrigal be the best decision for the White Sox if it comes down to between Madrigal and Brady Sinner. Brady Sinner is a good starting pitcher. I'm in love with this two-seam fastball. I think it's incredibly effective. He has done a better job with his changeup. He's done a better job with his slider. He has pitched in the big moments. However, people are not going to like his windup. It is too quick. The arm slot could be an issue. And he didn't exactly dominate this year on during his junior season. And I don't know if he has that ability to absolutely dominate a game a la like Michael Kopech or Alec Henson or even compared to other guys in the draft like Casey Mize or even Logan Logan Gilbert from Stetson. Uh, So if it's between those two, I think Nick Madrigal is the call because the White Sox have shown an ability to develop pitching. And I think there's plenty of options later in the draft. So there's part of draft strategy with this where the college hitter pool gym is just shallow if you're looking for impact bats. So don't pass it up. If you get an opportunity, take it. And then if you need more pitching, you can easily find it rounds three to seven because with these minor league reports, nobody knew who Blake Badenfield was. And I know it's Canapolis, Jim, 
but he has made significant changes and he has gotten better. And the White Sox are, we, I feel more comfortable them taking a pitcher and developing them than trying to find a diamond of the rough hitter and trying to make them into an all-star. I can see that. Um, you know, part of me thinks, you know, Singer might be a bit underrated maybe due to prospect fatigue or maybe like, you know, we're not, uh, I guess, you know, he's got three pitches and it kind of reminds me a little bit of mm-hmm. Aaron Nola kind of jumping out to me. Like where, when I remember when okay. Nola was drafted and it was after Aiken and Kolek and Carlos Rodon and it's kind of, you know, a similar thing where he's got a lot of polish. He's got three pitches. We don't know, you know, whether it's going to be, you know, dynamite stuff at the major league level. And now he's probably the best pitcher of the bunch. I mean, think, think Rodon has more start to start dominance, but as we've seen, he doesn't, you know, he's been having problems making a start to start, uh, uh, type appearances um, last two years. So, you know, Nola looks like the best of the bunch. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, fatigue might set in and we might be underrating Singer a little bit, but that's just kind of my gut feeling. Is there any validity to that? Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, what took the wind out of Singer's sails as draft prospect was his start against Arkansas. Arkansas has the best offense in college baseball. I think Arkansas is going to make it to the College World Series just because of the amount of power that's in their lineup. And a lot of these guys are freshmen and sophomores. So you're going to hear more about Arkansas hitters in the upcoming drafts. And they whooped up on Brady Singer. What bounced back from Brady Singer from not being a top 10 pick to now being a top 5 pick was going toe-to-toe against Casey Mize. Now, it was in Gainesville. Casey Mize faced a much better lineup than Brady Singer did, but Singer was outstanding in that start. He performed better than Casey Mize, who I still think is going to go number one overall to Detroit. Uh, And that helped regain a lot of the luster that he lost after his start against Arkansas. And his start in the NCAA regionals after missing a couple weeks due to hamstring tightness uh, was solid. It wasn't spectacular, but he still only allowed two runs over seven innings. And that's the type of pitcher that Brady Singer can be. And I think when the moment is bigger, Brady Singer is better. Now, there's a lot of things, and we had this conversation with Burke comparing Singer and Carson Fulmer. And I totally agree with Burke that Carson Fulmer was a bullpen guy made into a Friday night starter his junior year. And not everybody was sold that Carson Fulmer is a starter. Everyone's sold that Brady Singer is a starter. And uh, it's interesting that you made the Aaron Nola comp because maybe Brady Singer is that. He is going to be an Aaron Nola. Does, would that make Brady Singer the best starting pitching prospect that the White Sox have if they decide to select him? Maybe. He might be better than a Michael Kopech. He might be better than an Alec Henson or a Dane Dunney. And that kind of flips everything that we know about the White Sox farm system, right? That's why I have Brady Singer as the fourth guy on my draft board. But as the reasons I stressed, there's a reason why Nick Madrigal is number three on my draft board and Singer is number four. Uh, And we'll see how it all plays out uh, later today. But I think if Madrigal is selected by the Phillies number three overall, which is a total possibility, then yeah, the White Sox should be happy to have Brady Singer. But it'll be a very interesting conversation if Madrigal is available and the White Sox have to decide between the two. 
Well, that will do it for this week's P.O. Sox questions. Terrific questions this week, guys. Thank you so much for submitting them. And if you have a question or a topic you would like us to tackle on the show, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And also, you could help support the show by becoming a friend of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Machine. If you want additional content from us every single week, whether it is, it is additional writing, as in J- Jim does a mailbag article with questions just from our Patreon supporters, and our Patreon supporters get an opportunity to ask additional questions to our guests and ask additional P.O. Sox questions that we discuss on their own version of the Sox Machine podcast. Again, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up today to become a friend of the podcast. And for all of our supporters, thank you guys so much. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed the additional draft coverage as... We'll pick up the 2019 Major League Baseball draft later in the calendar year. Believe it or not, Jim, the biggest high school showcase on the calendar year is next week in Tampa. So all the scouting directors after these three days, they get a day off and they hop on a plane to go to Tampa, Florida to see the top high schoolers for the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. It's a living. It's a living. (laughs) It certainly is is and again we'll cover the 2019 major league baseball draft just as in depth as the 2018 so hopefully you guys have enjoyed the draft coverage and speaking as far as the draft coverage again at 6 p.m central time on monday we'll be having the socks machine draft show on mixer.com slash socks machine and also streaming on socks machine.com jim will be doing a lot of writing recapping all the draft day activities monday through wednesday at socks machine.com so definitely Check in, join the conversation in the comments section. Those folks do not bite. Uh, (laughs) And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who the White Sox select and add into the pipeline. That will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, there's a few ways you can subscribe. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store, search Sox Machine. If you do listen to us on iTunes, please leave us a review. Love to hear your feedback on the show. You can listen to us on Spotify. Just search Sox Machine and follow us there. You can also listen to us on the Google Play Music Store for the Android smartphone users. And as always, on audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.